Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Delian. I don't want to butcher your surname, and honestly, I think you've reached the point where anyone who would know who you are will recognize you by your first name. So uh, <laughs> can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, thankfully, uh, Delian is not too common of a uh, first name, so I can claim the namespace. But yeah, full name is Delian Asperohov. I'm currently a principal at Founders Fund, but also co-founder and incubator of this company, Varda Space Industries, that we just sort of got off the ground uh, over the past six months or so. You know, kind of my brief background is I used to study computer science at MIT, dropped out to get into the world of startups through the Teal Fellowship, ended up running an enterprise healthcare company for about three and a half, four years. Went okay, not amazing, but, you know, we went through Y Combinator, StartX, raised a seed round, got to a decent revenue scale, but not enough to raise our Series A. I was in the VP of growth at Teespring for about a year. And then for the past four years, I've been a venture capitalist. First half at Coastal Ventures, second half at Founders Fund, roughly two and two years at each. And at both firms was you know pretty focused on what I call engineering-based investing. And a significant focus area was sort of the commercial space industry. And the goal was eventually to actually start a commercial space company. And so you know, as much as maybe COVID was not ideal for the world as a whole, uh, it did provide me with uh, a little bit more free time to think about sort of how I would go about doing an incubation uh, and is eventually kind of how Varda came about. Tell us about Varda. So Varda is an idea that I've been thinking about, gosh, since like, you know, 2010. So it's definitely, you know, been almost a decade. Basically, I've always had this fundamental belief that, you know, one of the best ways to accelerate sort of humanity's path out into the stars is uh, by focusing on industry. The analogy that I like to give is California did not become California because the government or the military funded or reimbursed Lewis and Clark's you know, expedition missions. The way that California became California was the gold rush and the industrialization of California. And that the best way to sort of get to Mars is the doing the equivalent for space, which is not just sending big spaceships uh, out towards Mars, but instead focusing on industrialization and ideally first off near-term industrialization, near-space industrialization. So I'd always been thinking about, okay, what is the sort of, you know, first step to doing so before we even start to do asteroid mining or lunar ice mining or, you know, trying to set up a trade belt between, you know, us and Mars or something like that. The very first step is industrializing low Earth orbit and ideally creating things that you don't just try to sell in space because right now there's not that many people buying stuff in space. Like even if you were to manufacture things up there, most of the market is down here. And so Varda is primarily focused on in space manufacturing but it's manufacturing things in space for use down here on Earth. And the reason that that's valuable is because there's a wide variety of basically materials and products that can only be manufactured in a microgravity zero-G environment that have a ton of value for people down here on Earth. But like most of our customers for Varda have no clue that we're a space company. We're just a factory that produces materials like they've never seen before on Earth because they're literally not made on Earth. And so that's what we're primarily focused on. Why is now the right time? Yeah, you know, like I said, I've been thinking about this problem for, you know, almost a decade and it was kind of, you know, sitting on the back burner uh, for quite some time. But the reason that it's sort of most relevant to be done now is there's this sort of fundamental equation that comes with orbital manufacturing, which is basically dollars of value generated by being manufactured in space per unit mass of the material that you're making versus the dollars that it costs to send something up into space. And so as launch costs were extremely prohibitive, there was just no way to sort of make the numbers or the economics work for orbital manufacturing. 
basically as launch costs continue to drop, it both makes the high-end use cases economical, but as they continue to drop, it eventually opens up the world of materials that have benefit to being manufactured in space. And so, you know, right now, uh, the current launch costs and what Varda is focused on are more sort of niche, super high-end materials that wouldn't be, let's say, purchased by a consumer per se, but more by like really large groups like telecos or the military or things like that. But over time, one could actually eventually make the argument that Hell, even Apple's like M1 silicon chips can be done both cheaper and at much higher sort of efficiencies and yields in space than they can be done on Earth. As sort of launch costs continue to drop and as I was sort of seeing the performance of, in particular, obviously SpaceX with the Falcon 9, and especially over the course of 2020, I will say like I have a lot of friends that, you know, have worked at SpaceX or are still there and I was for sure a, say, rocket optimist. I thought things were going to go very well. I did not think that in 2020, they would have a rocket that launched for the first time in May, and that by the end of the year, that same rocket had launched and landed an additional five times. That progress and reusability went a lot faster than I expected. And so sort of seeing the early signals of that, seeing the early signals of Starship, that made it feel like, okay, now's the time to start the orbital manufacturing company and bet ahead that this trend will continue such that sort of when we're going to market, the launch costs are ready to sort of bear the burden uh, of our company. And so... Yeah, that's sort of why I think sort of now's the time and hell, maybe the right time would have been maybe like 18 months earlier, but I, w- I wasn't thinking that I was quite ready to incubate a company then. What do you think space manufacturing will bring? I think the most important thing is it will bring a lot more volume to the launch market, right? Like right now, the only reason that people launch things up is basically just satellites. And there's a variety of use cases for satellites, but they basically come down to two things. You're either taking photos of the Earth or you're communicating back down with the Earth. And taking photos of the Earth, sure, you can open up more and more spectrum, right? We started off with just pure visual with Planet Labs, and now we're expanding into synthetic aperture radar, infrared, uh, you know, tons of different parts of the spectrum. But at the end of the day, a camera is a camera is a camera. It's just you're looking at different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So that's one area, and yeah, I think that's some level of market. Communications, for sure, I think is even larger than that. But at the end of the day, Fiber optics and like the underlying sort of, you know, telecommunications infrastructure that we built up is quite well built and is very cheap for moving data around. The total market size for that is good and it's probably enough to maybe like, you know, help fund SpaceX, but it's still somewhat limited. And so the thing that I sort of get most excited about free and space manufacturing is when we start to look at the target markets that Varda is pursuing, we start to think about sending a payload every week or every couple of days that could fill up potentially the size of an entire Falcon 9 or eventually, you know, the size of, let's say, a third or even half of a Starship literally every single week. And so that's what I get most excited about in, for in-space manufacturing is I'm obviously very glad to have built out these products that end up providing a lot of value for our customers down here on Earth. And it's what we're motivated by. But at the end of the day, what I get super excited about is sort of how it helps accelerate humanity's path into the stars by making it so there's just a lot more flowing. And as there's just more things flowing up and down between you know Earth and low Earth orbit, then all of a sudden you have enough of the supply chain there that you can start to afford having more humans up there, flights up and down much more often. Eventually, that's what allows like asteroid mining and you know lunar ice mining to become much more commercially viable because now there's enough sort of supply chain and flow through low Earth orbit that people are willing to actually make a bet on those future supply chains. And so I really think about when we're thinking about how to expand humanity's path into the stars, it's like thinking about how do you create these supply chains. And so this is the first step in the supply chain and the one that is sort of most commercially near-term viable and largest in the, in the near term. 
That's so far out. This is awesome. <laughs> so, so can you talk a bit about the science of zero G manufacturing and, and what prior work there is in the area? Yeah, so it's an area that's been studied for, God, 25 years now at minimum. But gosh, even in the 60s and 70s, people were kind of like talking about this. What it mostly comes down to is there's a single sort of physics equation called Gibbs free energy, which basically just describes how different molecules crystallize depending on the amount of entropy in a system. When you're in a microgravity environment, you can much more fine-tuned control that entropy such that you can either choose to have very particular crystallizations or no crystallizations at all. So this is a little bit of like a complex, let's say, physics that I'll dive back into. But the simplest maybe example to provide to your audience to start is human organ 3D printing. So you know, when you do 3D printing on Earth, one of the most difficult things to do is very thin walls and intricate shape because you typically need basically support structures underneath. That's what we do with metal is when we're 3D printing metal, we put the support structures out, then we cut them out. There's some groups trying to work on preventing needing those. But at the end of the day, like it's quite difficult to do, even in metal, let alone if you try to move to something that's cellular based, you're doing 3D printing of cells. The moment that you start to basically print this human heart inside of a gravity field, it basically like flops over. And that makes it very difficult to print versus, as you can imagine, in zero gravity, you can actually continue to print this very intricate shape and it basically maintains its structure. And it's a lot easier to basically complete the like printing of a human organ. That's one example. The other example that I'm kind of providing is easiest maybe to understand around like cancer drugs. Basically, as you manufacture a cancer drug, at the end of the day, it's mostly like a chemical reaction that's basically coming up with one particular molecule. However, most of the time there are different shapes that that molecule can take. And typically that's entirely just dependent on the amount of heat that's being applied, how things are moving around. But in particular, the biggest effect is basically due to like sedimentation and convection. Basically heavier versions of the molecule flow down, they get heated up and it rises back up. And that happens on earth because we live inside of a gravity well. And that's why you have the terminology of like hot air rises, right? In space, there's no up or down. And so hot air doesn't rise, hot air stays in place. And so the way that you can think about it is like these types of cancer protein molecules stay in place and you could much more precisely basically heat them and force them into a very, very particular shape. And so that can increase the potency of the drug. It can make it so that there's much higher yields, much cheaper. And so, for example, there are certain cancer drugs that, you know, the Pfizer's of the world have worked on where they discover a manufacturing process, but unfortunately comes out with 50% of the molecules being very useful for the cancer, and then 50% of them being toxic, and they don't have a way to filter that out. And so it ends up actually killing the cancer drug manufacturing process versus in space, you can actually perfectly say, I actually just want 100% of this very particular version. But again, the reason that you're able to do that is because you can much more fine tune control how heat is applied and how these sort of crystals and molecules lock into place. So that's the very you know high level explanation behind it. People have been doing this type of research now, as I mentioned, for 25 years. It started off in real earnest in like sort of the mid 90s on the vomit comet uh, that NASA was running, where basically people would do these sort of microgravity experiments where you'd have a parabolic plane flight and you get you know 30 to 40 seconds. And then I'd say in the 2010s, over the past decade, a lot more has been done on the ISS across a variety of these types of experiments. Everything from 3D printing in space, fiber optics in space, human organs in space, semiconductors in space. There's been a a ton of research has been done on the ISS, but at the end of the day, you can't rely on the ISS and NASA as a 
component of a commercial supply chain. Like they are fundamentally research groups and research institutions. We're very grateful for those. And a lot of the work that BART is doing is predicated on research that these public institutions have done. We're basically helping sort of create the independent and purely commercial supply chains that we are not research. We are a commercial supply chain that is independent of, let's say, NASA and the ISS. And how do you envision rolling this out? Will will this be largely a series of partnerships or are you planning on building out uh, pretty robust capabilities in-house to develop uh, completely novel products or will it be more a matter of taking products that are limited in their manufacture on Earth and partnering with those organizations to do it in space? Yeah, the way that I described it was like Varda is ideally in the long term sort of like the contract manufacturer of space where we primarily focus on the physics of microgravity manufacturing, the logistics of getting things up and down, the materials. But ideally, we don't necessarily want to be the ones that are going all the way through to like the end product and end customer and developing that relationship. And so I sometimes kind of jokingly describe the company as like the Foxconn for space. Yeah, we want to be much more like Foxconn than we do Apple, where ideally the apples of the world come to us with their designs and say, hey, you're the only ones that know how to manufacture it. Ideally, though, obviously with much sort of higher gross margin uh, that Foxconn has, I think partially because, you know, the defensibility of a space manufacturer is going to be a little bit more than just, you know, iPhones and cheap labor in China. And also, you know, American made and American ground. So uh, there's a lot of people in the defense industry that like an equivalent of the Foxconn for space, but that's American made. So yeah, a lot of it, you know, early on, we're going to have to be developing a lot of this ourselves, both the actual products that we're going to be manufacturing and the end customers ourselves in-house. But over time, the goal would be to actually just form partnerships with companies that both have expertise in particular areas. And then we just introduce the one particular step because a lot of these products, it's not like the entire manufacturing line needs to be in space. It's actually typically just like one or two very particular steps. And so ideally, we're working with somebody that already has a manufacturing line in these types of products. So for example, like I don't want to get into cancer drug manufacturing. I don't want to get into like FDA approvals, but I would love to do a like joint venture with Pfizer where like we take a drug that's going to market, help them set up their supply chain in a way where they have a particular step that runs through Varda and runs through our microgravity factories. And so that's the ideal long-term, but in the short term, we can't be reliant obviously on others for our own success. We can't become like a platform on day one. So we have to start off by developing our own products and then eventually that builds up the logistics and operations and infrastructure to then become a platform. So we're sort of more in our like book selling Amazon phase than we are on like the like Amazon marketplace phase. We would love to become the marketplace one day. But for now, we just got to figure out how to like market and sell these books and become large enough that eventually people want to come to us to be a platform. So you talked earlier about this being the first step towards robust multi-point space supply chains. What is your vision for space long-term? Where, where, where do you think we're, we're headed? I know we're kind of getting in a sci-fi territory here, but you know what, what do you think we might see in your lifetime? Yeah. I mean, part of why I'm so excited about space exploration is I do think that like the fundamentals of the institutions that I believe in the most, both democracy and capitalism, are somewhat dependent on uncapped upside, uncapped growth, non-zero-sum equations and non-zero-sum games. And I think at the end of the day, yes, you can continue to become more and more productive on Earth, but space is the eventual final frontier and what makes both life on Earth, but life in the galaxy sort of non-zero sum. And so I actually think that like, unless we get to space ASAP, 
we will start to see cracks in the foundations of these institutions that we care so deeply about. I think it is going to be difficult to continue maintaining a democratic and capitalistic United States without space. So that's why I got excited about it. What I think we're going to see is within a decade, I think you're going to see extremely large scale low earth orbit infrastructure. So we're talking about things that are 10x the size of the ISS, staffed by humans, and largely run by private corporations. I think within the next five to 10 years after that, you're seeing large-scale infrastructure on sort of both near bodies like the moon, but as well as further, let's say, mid-range bodies like the Lagrangian points between us and the sun on the other side, you know, further out into the solar system. And then within, I'd say, 20 years of today, you start to see things on probably maybe not quite on like, you know, the surface of Mars and significant infrastructure, but probably on like, you know, Phobos and like some of the moons of Mars that are a little bit easier to get in and out of um, is, I think, the things that I get sort of most excited about. And as you can tell, the way that I describe it is I think about it again in these sort of like step-by-step supply chains. The best way to get to Mars is not by landing straight on Mars. It's by probably creating a trading post on like a little Lagrangian point where like people can bring in asteroids, process them, and then go from the Lagrangian point back down, you know, to Earth into low Earth orbit down to the factories that are down there. And so that's where I get really excited is like you got to step by step start to expand the like, you know, sphere of economic influence. We like recently sort of went through like mission and values exercise at Varda and, you know, sort of came up with, you know, a draft version, but of our mission statement being expanding the economic bounds of humankind. So that's how I think about, you know, anything in space is uh, you don't want to just expand the exploration bounds. You want to expand the economic bounds of humankind. We've gone to Venus. We've gone to Pluto. We've gone to Europa. We've gone there on research missions. I don't want to just send more research missions with humans. When we're sending humans out, let's do it in a way that is like economic and profitable and more helpful and valuable to people here on Earth. It's incredible. So besides space, what areas of tech are you most excited about? And what do you think is most oversold? Yeah, I think it is amazing to see um, a lot of the innovation curves that we've been riding for the past, let's say, you know, 10 years or so start to sort of have like their next waves. And so, you know, the examples that I like to use here are let's take like battery energy density and let's say compute density. Over the past decade, it's been very difficult as a venture investor to invest in anything that basically just isn't lithium ion or just Intel continuing to like, you know, shrink chips further and further because those curves were just so predictable and it's so much scale behind them. Like the amount of money going into just continuing to improve lithium ion was so great that it was basically impossible as like an up and coming startup to ever compete against that. But we're now actually starting to hit these like fundamental like physics limitations. We're like, we're basically done with lithium ion. You can't increase the energy density basically any further. And so for the first time, you now have the ability for there to be this wide open field of potential new technologies for batteries. And I think that's actually good because like, I'm not convinced that like lithium ion was improving on the fastest curve that was available to humanity. Like I think there were technologies that could have already sort of leapt forward, but those could never attract enough economic scale to ever be able to compete against lithium ions improvements versus now there's so much capital flowing into new types of battery technology that I think that will over the next decade innovate far faster than we did over the past decade in terms of battery energy density. And I think that has wide ranging implications from everything from 
electric flying cars, the range of electric batteries, the likelihood that the penetration of electric cars in the United States improves significantly. It has implications for how the world of space, just like the amount of power that you can get into a satellite. And so I get really excited seeing a lot of these sort of like, let's say, fundamental inputs into a lot of the technology that humanity relies on, like battery, like compute starting to step into sort of new paradigms. So in the world of computing, it's unlikely that Intel and NVIDIA today are at the forefront of compute for CPUs and GPUs. 10 years ago, that was the same case. I don't think 10 years from now, it's going to be the same case. I think there will be a new CPU and GPU leaders. And the only reason is because both of those companies are now really reaching the sort of fundamental physics limitations. And I think that's sort of great for humanity in some ways. Like we've tapped out all the resources that we can from this new technology. 10 years ago, there was like, for sure, some chips companies getting funded. There are now, I can name like five different optical chip related, whether it's interconnects, like compute companies that are getting funded by like top tier investors that are north of, let's say, 50 to $100 million total in funding. I think that's like an incredibly exciting world to live in. And it's part of why I love working on like the venture side of things is I not only get to see the future of space, but I get to see the future of batteries. I get to see the future of compute. And then also get to think through what are the types of flying car companies one could invest in now that maybe aren't viable today with lithium ion, but will be viable in three to four years with some of these like solid state batteries that like quantum scapes of the world are like working on. And so, yeah, I don't know. That's obviously like a broad range of things, but I think, you know, the 2010s were the decade of the bits and there were some changes in atoms, but at the end of the day, like this office and the life that I lived was basically the same as somebody that did in 2010. Uber and Airbnb and things like that are like nice, but they're sort of new economic models. They're not like new physical models. Versus I really do believe that the 2020s are going to be like the decade of the atoms where, you know, my life on a fundamental day-to-day basis is actually going to look quite different a decade from now than it does today. The way that I transport via flying cars much more economically available, small-scale electric planes allowing uh, individual consumers to be able to like afford private flights. All of this, I think, is going to really, really change how people live their lives on a day-to-day basis. Hell, you know, even just the houses that we live in, I think, are going to change quite a bit. One of the companies that I'm most excited about in my portfolio cover is basically building houses on an equivalent of like an automotive line. And they build these extremely high quality houses that are at the price of affordable housing almost. And they're only continue to drop the floor of that. Like at the end of the day, the way that construction is done today, there's like a fundamental floor that like nobody can beat that is basically like high skilled labor. There's a reason why everybody can afford an iPhone now. And it's not because people got better at like the labor behind how you manufacture these iPhones. It's because people got better at the actual manufacturing lines and the actual capex and the R&D to automate more and more of this and make it cheaper. And we haven't seen that same innovation curve hit homes yet. We should be able to allow every American to afford as high of a quality of a home as they do quality in the pocket computers. When when are they going to move out of LA? I I, I looked them up uh, the other day, but they can't help us out here in Florida yet. Yeah, I mean, as you know, it's like with a startup focus is everything. And so, you know, they're primarily focused right now on like backyard homes, a very specific square footage and really just optimizing that product. And they're like high end ADUs are kind of like the roadster equivalent. And so, yeah, they're not mass market yet in a variety of different ways. They're meant for, you know, sort of more affluent folks that have a large backyard that are trying to add a second property. It's like, more accessible in LA, but accessible in LA is not the same as, you know, mid-market in Florida. 
their you know next is going to be like the model s which is still going to be on the high end but much more accessible versus like now they're more on like the ultra high end but what i get excited about is just like starting to see that progress any other construction company that i've ever looked at they make like a little bit of progress via some like software that does workforce coordination or something like that but like there's a pretty high floor on like the cost that they can get to versus like covers floor on when they where they can get to with their like super high quality homes is like extremely cheap uh and it's really cool to start to see that cost curve progressing where are the bubbles we probably can't go on forever just printing infinite amounts of cash and distributing that to people and this path leads to only firm inequality and wealth inequality. Like I think this constant printing and constant asset inflation is like a huge bubble. I think what's going to end up happening is the government starting to pull back on this. We're going to go through a huge, I think, demand shock while supply is not going to be able to catch up as COVID comes to an end across a variety of different things, whether it's, you know, travel, consumer good consumption, like there's just so much pent up demand and supply chains just don't react that quickly. Take airplane flights. The airlines have made a lot of cuts, both in terms of, you know, CapEx, people. I think flight prices from, let's say, like SF to LA are going to skyrocket. There used to be flights every hour on the hour between SF and LA uh, from like, you know, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. for commuter flights every day on like, let's say, Delta and United. Right now, those are like limited to like 9 a.m. to like 6 p.m. And there's far fewer of them. Even as demand starts to skyrocket in a couple of months, these airlines aren't going to be able to like immediately react. It takes time to like start to like staff things back up, buy up more like, you know, planes. And so what's going to end up happening is like you're just going to have this huge demand shock, limited supply, prices are going to go through the roof. And so there's going to be a lot of these things that just become inaccessible to the average consumer for an extended period of time until supply can actually catch up. And so that's where I sort of get worried. And I think the way that plays out in terms of like the public markets is like, I'm very happy that the IPOs that have happened over the past quarter have happened. You know, I think it's amazing to see the amount of dollars that the VC community have like returned back to their LPs and that those dollars will get reinvested into new funds and new companies. And that's great. But I do think Tesla probably needs to drop by 2x. Like, you know, Snowflake is going to probably drop by 30 to 40%. And one of my like, you know, public equities friends described it as like, look, over the past decade, the person who won was just whoever bet on Amazon. And so the reason that all these companies are getting, you know, so, so highly priced is, you know, these public equities investors just don't want to miss out on the next Amazon. And so now every company IPOing is getting priced as if they're the next Amazon. Not all of them are, including some, you know, probably in our portfolio, right? They're, they probably are not the next Amazon and I'm not sure that they quite have, you know, trillion dollar upside uh, in terms of market cap. And I don't think the public markets quite yet reflect that. You know, I'm, I'm loving these techno optimism, probably needs to be dialed back. It was 10x, off three years ago. Now, uh, 10x off in terms of like the public markets were not optimistic enough about tech, right? People underappreciated Tesla. They underappreciated like companies like Airbnb versus now I think it's like maybe like 40 to 50% too optimistic. And so we'll probably get dialed back down, but still net net, it's going to be like amazing for technology because like still we were off by 10x and now it's going to be more like off by 7x or something like that. So let's talk about you. You've had a, a really unique path. Uh, how did you get to where you are today? Maybe we can go way back to uh, childhood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you grew up in an Eastern European household with uh, two PhDs as parents and, you know, math multiplication table flashcards before you can even like really speak English. You kind of, you know, become pretty academically oriented and, you know, pretty oriented around math, physics and robotics pretty early on in life. I thought I was going to be an academic professor type. I went off to MIT expecting that I was going to, you know, join GPL one day. And that was how I was going to get into the world of space was through the world of quote unquote academic space. 
but sort of got sidetracked, you know, freshman year at MIT into the world of startups, ended up interning at Square the summer between my freshman and sophomore year, just totally fell in love with Silicon Valley, like thought that it was like the most amazing place on the planet and I needed to get out here ASAP or ended up being roommates with a guy that was friends with a Teal fellow. And so I learned about that program was like, oh my God, this is the way that I can get back out to Silicon Valley ASAP. So I ended up applying for that program, dropping out, and I've now been in San Francisco since like, you know, summer of 2013. It's been a, you know, circuitous journey during my time here, but in some ways just like stick around in Silicon Valley for long enough and, you know, sort of keep doing hard work. You'll eventually sort of get better at identifying the opportunities that land in your lap and knowing which ones to pull the trigger on and which ones not to and start to build up inflow of more opportunities. And so, yeah, super grateful with how the past seven years have gone, even if at times it didn't feel very obvious where things were going to go and felt pretty brutal. I ended up, you know, running this company that, like I said earlier, we did okay, but not amazing. You know, we got to kind of like ramen profitability, but man, I slammed my head against the wall trying to make that company successful, you know, as a sort of 19-year-old MIT dropout. But yeah, it did not turn into Dropbox or Facebook. But it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about fundraising, marketing, uh, sales, how to hire, how to fire. So I'm grateful for that experience. I ended up, you know, joining Teespring for a year as kind of a break, honestly. But like, again, it was a useful experience where I just learned how to like operate as an executive within a larger organization. It just gives you like, I have some friends that have basically just like only been founders since they were whatever, 19 or 20. And they never like worked inside of a quote unquote real company. And so I think that like one year experience was really helpful to understand like, oh, here's how like a 350 person, 300 million a year, quote unquote, large company functions. Uh, and here's how I fit into it as somebody that just runs like a, you know, 15, 20 person team. And then you know, I was considering basically founding something again after that sort of quote unquote teespring break. Had a couple of different ideas that I was chewing on, had a couple of different founding teams, but it wasn't quite coming together in time. And Keith basically made me this offer to, you know, come join him at Coastal Ventures as his chief of staff. And yeah, it was just an incredible experience learning from via osmosis from like one of the best VCs on the planet for like 12 hours a day. Turns out if you do that for even just like a year and a half, you end up learning a ton. And then steadily over time, started to like strike out on my own, let's say, and uh, started to learn how to bring in companies, invest in them, start to understand like they were, you know, for sure things that I liked about the areas that Keith invested in, but there were also areas that Keith wasn't interested in that I was, like space as an example, and started to really explore those investment areas. Uh, it was about, yeah, maybe three, three and a half years ago where I realized that like space could be more than just a like personal hobby, but that it could be like a, you know, professional interest. And so started going to like space conferences, meeting with VC-backed space CEOs, People would always ask me like, oh, if you were able to leave VC, like what would it be for? And I always said like, oh, it'd be like to like found a space company. But then seeing Keith, you know, do Open Door, seeing now Trey Stevens here at uh, Founders Fund do Android, I was like, oh, maybe there's a way to do the incubating thing. And so, you know, I started thinking about, okay, what would I incubate? Started talking with some SpaceX friends this past summer about like Starship and some ideas that I had and had been thinking about orbital manufacturing. And then stumbled across Will Brewey, who's now the CEO of Varda. And I was like, oh my God, he's like going to be the perfect CEO for this. He's just the lead hardware engineer on the you know Crew Dragon, head of mission control for eight of the cargo ISS missions, like super well-respected at SpaceX, super entrepreneurial, had, you know, itch that he wanted to scratch. Quote that I always like to use is, you know, you don't become Elon by working for Elon. And Will definitely felt that. He wanted to strike out and become his own Elon. Yeah, you know, I definitely remember like talking to my girlfriend like in July being like, there's just no way I can pull off this incubation thing. Like the type of founding team that I have to put together, being able to put together this fundraiser is like super, super unlikely. But then lo and hold by like mid-November, I was like, oh shit, like this thing is actually coming together and I'm going to have to do it. So yeah, I don't know. That was a, obviously a way, very wide ranging answer about like how I got to today, but happy to, you know, dive in more on any of it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Why do you think the Teal Fellowship has has been a success? 
Yeah, I mean, it was not obvious. Like, you know, when I was in it, let's say seven years ago, a lot of people still made fun of the fellowship, didn't think that there was going to be any successful companies from it. People like really ragged on it. And it's crazy to see now you've got Vitalik with Ethereum, you've got Dylan with uh, Figma, uh, you got, I think it's Paul with Upstart. There have just been, you know, now clearly a higher number of hits than basically any other program, even I think like YC in terms of like a percentage basis, I say, right? Like obviously YC still in total is ahead in terms of like market cap, but they've also funded a lot more companies. I think it's just like select for anomalous people and you'll end up, you know, doing all right, basically in the long term. You know, even in like 2016, people were still pretty bearish on like Dylan and Figma. It wasn't super obvious even then, right? Even after like him having worked on the company for years. But I think, you know, Dylan had the resilience to just like keep grinding away at it. And now Figma feels like a, you know, quote unquote overnight success, but he's been at it for like an extended period of time. But like most people probably would have given up. But I think Teal Fellowship sort of selected for people willing to take a non-standard path, were willing to sort of bang their head against the wall and not necessarily give up. You know, one thing that I think is really positive about COVID in some ways is taking everybody off of their quote unquote traditional life paths. You know, everybody is just kind of going to continue to go to school and continue to climb the rung at their company. All of a sudden, like everybody's life got thrown in a completely different direction. And I think it's actually been like great in a lot of ways because I think that's kind of what just the Teal Fellowship does. Like it takes people that are willing to have their life thrown in a different direction, but then actually does it. And learning how to deal with that on the fly and being comfortable with sort of structure and ambiguity and things like that is actually an extremely valuable skill set. Like if you look at the people that I think are most successful in Silicon Valley over the course of like decades, it's the people that are willing to just constantly take all the risk and take these like massive swings. And I think the Teal Fellowship sort of teaches you early on in your career how to take a huge swing, I dropping out of school and doing a sort of risky, non-traditional path. If you continue to do that, you end up being quite successful. And so I think that's partially why the Teal Fellowship has seen the success that it has. And what, what, in your opinion, should be deciding factors on someone doing something like the Teal Fellowship versus staying in college? Yeah, I mean, it's for sure not for everybody. Like college has a lot of beneficial attributes. The structure, the you know social environment, there's a lot that's beneficial there. I'd say for the people that feel like they kind of already know what they want to do in the real world and feel comfortable in the quote unquote real world, they don't need somebody to like do their laundry for them and you're ready to just like go out and do things. Like the Teal Fellowship is like, probably a good fit for you. If you want to like kind of do frat parties and get into the world of academia, then like you should probably keep doing that. And I think honestly, that's better for most people. Most people are not ready. Like if you put them out into the real world and give them 100K, they're just going to end up sort of completely wasting their time and end up, you know, in a much worse situation than they would have been in if they had just like stuck with school. And so I think if you're comfortable with ambiguity, comfortable with like a lack of structure, ready to go out into the real world, like absolutely, it's a great, it's a great way to, great place to go. If you're, you know, not sure about things, you're not sure what you want to do with your life, et cetera, et cetera, like maybe spend more time in this like structured environment that allows you to sort of figure out what you want to do with your life in an easier way than uh, give you 100K and make you build a company. <laughs> And among the Teal Fellows, did you notice any identifying attributes that ended up being predictive of who kind of knocked it out of the park versus, uh, you know, who's not on our radar anymore? Yeah, it comes to the exact same thing of like, there was just a set of Teal Fellows that like weren't yet ready for being out in the real world. And like, there are ones that like, I would, I could pretty confidently say were like, 
worse off after doing the program than they were before. Like they should have just stayed at Dartmouth and been a valedictorian at Dartmouth and then gotten a really good eye banking job. And then maybe three or four years later, got into the world of startups. But then like the moment that they basically got shifted off of that career track, just really started spinning their wheels and sort of losing track of like what the hell they wanted to do with their life. And so a, a lot of it really comes down to like, you need to be willing to be sort of self-motivated and self-define your own goals and not rely on both external validation or external planning of your life. And I think most people are not like that. Like most people need other people to tell them what to do, how to do, how to be successful versus you just can't if you do the Teal Fellowship. Like you need to defi define sort of your own success. Like nobody in the Teal Fellowship program is going to define that for you. So since we're on the topic of the, the Teal Fellowship, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Oh man, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've been like asked this question. I've never actually like, you know, verbalized this like on Twitter or anything like that. We don't really need most of humanity to be productive. In the future, I'd say, not in like the immediate, immediate term. But in the not too distant future, you could probably have 95% of people just like playing artificial games and entertainment and like video games, just being artists and things like that, and just purely creative, self-fulfilling pursuits. And that you only need like 5% of humanity to just basically like help with allocating like resources, innovation, doing like fundamental research and actually pushing forward. Yeah, the way that I sometimes joke is like in the future, everyone's going to be an actor. Like 95% of people are going to be like, you know, actors and musicians. And, you know, and it's great. I'm like glad. Like we will be a much more cultural society in some ways and a much more like, you know, rich and probably happier society because we don't need people to be baristas or et cetera, et cetera. Because a lot of that maybe gets, you know, automated by robotics. Or you, if you choose to still be a barista, it's because you're doing it at like the high, high end because you want to do it as like a craft, not in like a sort of like, you know, we were paying you strictly for like, robotic menial hours and i don't think we need to like as a society try to help make everybody like productive like i don't think everybody needs to be like an engineer or contributing to technology or contributing to like pushing community forward i think we need to get comfortable with the idea that like you know most people just don't want to but like nor do we really need that many people to and so i think it's a somewhat dystopian world where you end up having sort of 90 percent of the world and sort of like this like universal basic income type thing where you have enough to provide for yourself and enough to you know choose to do anything from like playing video games all day to producing music to you know being an actor everybody uh within that ecosystem consumes that same content that everybody else is producing and i think you're starting to see that right if you look at just like the popularity of celebrities like the TikToks, TikTokers and the YouTubers of the world are not as popular as a whole in comparison to like Marilyn Monroe or like Tom Cruise was like a few decades ago, right? There's just a long tail now of celebrities where, yeah, like everybody's a celebrity, everybody's an actor, and then everybody spends all day consuming content from one another. And I think that's, you know, it's an okay world actually to like live in. And then there's going to just be a lot fewer people that actually sort of push, push the world forward. What do you think is the time scale on that? The way that I sometimes project this stuff is just like, look at like, you know, the sort of world poverty graphs and like, you know, how rapidly poverty has been dropping in the world, but then also in the United States, like it is for sure a very widespread problem, but also news and most people by default want to sort of fear monger and not show you like how amazing it is, how much we've dropped both, let's say like infant, you know, mortality and then how much like poverty as a whole has dropped. And so I think if you just continue to extrapolate sort of like the median income curves 
of the median family in the United States. And then also the deflationary effects of tech were like 10, 20 years ago, this thing would have cost like $2 billion. Nobody could have made this basically, right? Versus now this thing costs like $600. I think you're actually looking at this like 10 to 15 years out. I don't think like we're actually that far away. If you continue to just like extrapolate these curves, put in some like exponential assumptions as opposed to like linear assumptions, like man, from 2016 to 2020, medium household income rose a lot faster than GDP did, uh, which is a great signal for like, you know, US sort of like general income inequality. Like people today are significantly richer than they were in 2016. And I, I don't think like most people have wrapped their heads around that. Like, yeah, COVID sucked. Like there's been a lot of things that are like not great. Like unemployment is not great. But if you look at like average household savings, average household income, like they're in an amazing place. What do you think will be the geopolitical implications? You, you need to figure out how to give people internal motivation and mission and validation by like the work that they're doing, right? And I do think like, like some of these technology platforms like TikTok actually help with this. Dancing for your group of 20,000 followers, strangers, provides you the validation that you need to like feel motivated and like get up in the morning. Some of the online video games and tournaments and things like that, like you just need to like start to create these like artificial structures since I think as people start to like spin their wheels too much, lack structure in their lives or motivation or purpose, I think there's a reason why household income has gone up the amount that it has. And then also like QAnon conspiracy theories have gone up the amount that they have. It's because like all of a sudden these people have a lot more like wealth and free time and you end up sort of spinning your wheels into these like, you know, crazy dark corners of the internet. And so I think that will only continue. And so helping, you know, provide some centering for these people is probably going to be the most difficult thing. Like, how do you prevent the world from just continuing to fracture and continuing to radicalize? You know, I think everybody thinks like, oh, Trump is gone. And like, now everything's going to be calm. And it's like, I think we're just getting started. <laughs> uh, like, there are going to be a lot more Trump-like characters in the future. And we got to know how to deal with this. So on an unrelated note, although we're an all-remote company, we're headquartered in Florida. So I understand you and the mayor of Miami kicked off quite the conversation about an, an exodus from Silicon Valley to, to Miami. Can you tell us a bit about that? I don't know if all of our listeners are, are aware of this. Yeah, so Keith had maybe announced his move to Miami, I would say like two or three weeks maybe before that tweet, and it was getting a lot of attention. And I was kind of chewing on it. We even debated like in December, like maybe we should put Varda down in LA and like, the problem was just like everybody that we were recruiting, a lot of them were ex-SpaceX. And so it was kind of difficult to justify like how many people were going to have to move across the country. And then California, I believe, basically like announced their like outdoor dining lockdowns. And I was just so insanely frustrated. I was like, this just makes no effing sense. Like why, in what God's name would you justify this? Like just... Oh, it was so frustrating. And so was just like literally like sitting on the toilet and was like frustrated with it. I, I got a new idea. And the, the joke was supposed to be somewhat pithy because like obviously Keith had been talking about it for like weeks on end. But I was like, guys, hear me out. Like, what if we like move Silicon Valley to Miami? And then man, that tweet just like took off. And it's funny because like a very pithy tweet. Like I'm not planning on like moving to Miami anytime soon. Like, but you know, Varda's not in Miami. So never say never. Uh, but at least in the short term, no, no immediate plans. And yeah, it just took off. Like I did not expect it to go off so much. And then uh, the the mayor quite brilliantly, maybe like 11 or 12 hours into the tweet when he was going like pretty damn viral, um, quote tweeted it, which is like, a, how can I help? And then it just like really exploded. That's just like the classic, like, you know, I don't, I don't think he even meant it. Like that's just been his classic mantra as a politician. But like little did he know that like the how can I help has like, you know, such a signal here in like the VC community. And so that just made it like totally explode. And then it's just 
been off to the races sort of since then. He's like hosting these cafecitos. People are moving there, buying houses there. And so, yeah, I've had like some, you know, Miami real estate agents like reach out to me and like thank me for, you know, upping the value of their like portfolio through like a single tweet. And I'm like, I you know tweeted and I didn't even get to participate in any of the upside. I'm not even like planning on moving there anytime soon, but I'll be there mid-March for uh, Keith's birthday. So uh, I'll get to experience it for at least a week myself. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for joining us, uh, Deli. And it was a lot of fun. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on, Grant. Really appreciate it.